Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from clickbait creators Tony Ayres and Christian White about making the Netflix thriller in Australia. Dexter New Blood showrunner Clyde Phillips talks about the return of America's favourite serial killer to Showtime. And Jason and Peter Filardi, creators and showrunners of Epic's horror series Chapelweight, discuss adapting Stephen King's short story Jerusalem's Lot for the small screen. Clickbait is a high-stakes thriller that uses multiple perspectives to tell a story about a man threatened with death in a mysterious online video. The eight-part series launched on Netflix around the world on August the 25th and comes from co-creators Tony Ayres and Christian White. The show marks crime novelist Christian White's first series, while showrunner Tony Ayres has been behind some of the most critically and commercially successful high-end television series to come out of Australia, in The Slap and Nowhere Boys. Produced by Australia's Matchbox Pictures and Tony Ayres Productions plus UK-based Heyday Television, all of which are part of NBC Universal International Studios, the series stars Get Out's Betty Gabriel, The Big Six Zoe Kazan and Entourage's Adrian Grenier. Christian and Tony spoke to Nico Franks about the complexities of making a show set in Oakland, California, in Melbourne, Australia, for a streamer with a global audience, as well as why viewers seemingly can't get enough of crime content. It was a bit of a strange marriage because I read a script that Christian wrote that won him an Australian Writers Guild Prize, and I really loved it, and I thought, oh, you know, here's someone I want to work with. And I, I proposed that we work together on this TV series, which was the original incarnation of Clickbait and was called Carnivores back then. And then I went and pitched it to Channel 4 in the UK, and Simon Maxwell, who was running that department back then, was really interested in the idea and the form and because uh, it was like a, a mystery told in eight different points of view and he, he thought that was really interesting but he thought the original crime was um felt a bit old-fashioned so he sort of presented me with this idea well let's do th- th- that format like telling a story in from eight different points of view but let's try to do it in a contemporary way and so i brought that note back to christian uh, in australia and he um, went and did this incredible research into crimes that have been created since the internet. I guess. Um, yeah, it, I spent sort of probably, it must have been four or five weeks just going down, you know, insane rabbit holes, getting myself on dozens of internet watch lists, I'm sure. Um, you know, the FBI is probably watching us by now, probably listening to this. Um, but yeah, and we just looked for. I just sort of, we just sort of cast a really wide net, but something um, I think I think Tony made this pretty clear early on that it it it, it wasn't enough just to find cool stories um, about the dangers of the internet and social media. It, we really wanted to, to sort of examine how those stories affect individuals. So every sort of you know any anything I researched, I really tried to find uh, the human effect. Um, you know, we sort of we came back with the, yeah this this huge research document and. Um, I guess we sort of put it in a blender and then, and and Tony has this incredible, this ridiculous ability to sort of stitch, stitch things together. So we sort of, we, we sort of stitch the, all these, all these ideas together and, um, and, and clickbait sort of emerged from there. I think it was like a toilet break and 
there were three crimes and it suddenly I thought, well, if you did it in this order and this order and this order, then that's the whole story. And and that was kind of weirdly the foundation of the the show. And it has pretty much remained like that all the way through. Yeah, I think your your toilet breaks are very important because you usually we've got a problem in the room. You 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 disappear for I don't know an, an annoyingly short period of time, three or four minutes, and you come back with the answers. So I think that's um they're very important. That's why we feed you lots of water. In terms, of, it seems perfect for Netflix given how bingeable it is. Was that obviously everyone wants to create a show that people can't wait to watch the next episode? But in terms of the the beats and the structure, when you're you know you're creating for a streamer, are there certain things that you would include? that you wouldn't necessarily include if you knew it was going to be consumed in a different way. Tony will know more about this than I do, but Netflix is, it's still the place you go to, to, to binge, you know? So I, so I think that um, they definitely played into our, our you know, that our writing style and, you know, one of our big words, I think in the room was propulsive, propulsive, propulsive. <laughs> and um, we really wanted to, you know, because it, every episode is, is from a different perspective, but it, it's, it's not examining the same event. The story had to continue to move forward. And, and the perspective we shifted into was just sort of the best view, you know, the best view of that story beat. It was certainly, you know, in our discussions with Netflix, it was certainly one of the things that, they, that was really important to them in, in getting the show. They wanted something that, that kept moving forward in. And I also think that it sort of suits the, the nature of the show as well, because in some ways that, you know, the, the meta of it is that it's a comment on, you know, crime as entertainment, on um, on what makes clickbait, how is clickbait constructed, you know, like so. So there is a kind of commentary about the way in which we we do consume the you know information on the internet and, and how it un- unleashes this part of the brain which is like the reptilian part of the brain that. And and that so so much of what we do in in front of our screens is impulsive. We talked a lot about Mm. how people are sort of fascinated by crime and by the. I think it weirdly in a world of uncertainty, it makes people feel safe to know that crimes can be solved. Mm. I I think that that is part of the appeal of it. I think that um, we. We were really interested in the idea of doing a 360 on, you know, on what crime means to different people, which is why the different points of view kind of made sense thematically. Like, so, you, and I remember a note that we got really early, which I thought was a really good note, was that there's something cool about the crime from one person's point of view being life and death about the most important person to you. And the very same crime from the next point of view actually being about a job promotion, <laughs> you know, like this. Mm. And I, I, th- I think that that's kind of something we kept factoring in as we were putting the show together, that there was this inner circle who were very close to the crime, close to the guy who gets kidnapped. And then there's an outer circle of people who are somehow connected to the crime, but mm. as either benefactors from it or or sometimes the criminals themselves. And it's billed as a limited series. So was that quite uh, freeing to be approaching something when you know it's a limited series? And are there potential avenues to to spin it off longer than that? 
Yeah, I, I don't have a lot of experience. Uh, you know, this is this is my my first TV show, but it was being a limited series was there was something wonderful about being able to tie up the story in a satisfying way and not have to worry about loose threads and and ending the series on a, the season on a cliffhanger and things like that. So that was um, I don't know. It felt really nice to sell to tell a, a a big but self-contained. At the end of the day, it's a self-contained story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and clear character arcs. And that was sort of um, that was really a, a fun a sort of format to work in. For both Christian and I, we we really love the format. Like, there's something really cool about telling a story from all these different points of view. And I had worked in that format a couple of times before. I did a show called The Slap, and a show called mm-hmm. Seven Times of Ambiguity. And there's something really great about being able to just switch points of view because it means that you have to be empathetic to everyone in the story and it it, it means because when you're in the point of view of a character they can't just be some psychopath or villain or you know that you know which which a lot of thrillers rely upon you know they rely on you know someone being other than um whereas when, when you're switching all those points of view that eventually you have to be in creating this the show you have to be the villain at some point and you have to understand the villain and i think that there's something really interesting in that so we love the format and hopefully this is a bit of a proof of concept that we could do that format again and if audiences respond to it then you know and love it as much as us (laughs) then uh you know (laughs) there, there there are other ways of replaying that format and you know Christian and I are discussing that. In some ways it's quite an Australian production because obviously both of you being in Australia in Melbourne and obviously Netflix is a US player how was that kind of combination of a US platform uh, with Australian talent? I think initially it was nerve-wracking because we I hadn't done that before like tried to make a US show in Australia we had this amazing American production desire designer, Lauren Krasko, and a fantastic setup director, Brad Anderson, and from, from the States. And I think that we really relied on them to make the show feel authentic. And Lauren had this extraordinary um, eye for detail. So she, you know, noticed that the, the, the door handles were too high in Australia. So we had to <laughs> import some doors and the the roofs are wrong and the curbs are wrong and so we you know like you know we had to sort of make all these changes um that i think are really important because i think that ultimately there is a subliminal level at which you notice these things you know and mm. if you cumulatively feel too many things are wrong there's some, there's some some alarm that goes off in the back of your head but uh yeah yeah it was kind of nerve-wracking but i hope that we got away with it yeah having american writers come on i think help i was raised on sort of uh, american pop culture so i have uh, you know I, I have a feel for it but it's it's an outsider's view and so so i think bringing on american writers really helped just make it feel a bit more authentic and real and not like um we were it never felt like a parody or anything like that and, and anytime if there was ever any australianisms they got caught and taken out and we played around with that. And yeah, I think that was part of, a big part of the process. When you speak in your native vernacular, you ha- you have no idea that people don't say that everywhere around the world. Yeah, Australia's definitely got some great swear words. 
all to its own. <laughs> in some ways, I guess it's great in terms of getting to work with Hollywood without having to 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 leave the the comfort of your own home. And obviously, in a pandemic, it's slightly different. But I suppose the worry would be that you lose that specificity if everything is kind of going to be going through this kind of broadly U.S. lens. I think for us, it was important that we had the Netflix point of view because they they sort of represented what was authentically American. I, I think that that was really important. I think if we were making an Australian show uh, for Netflix, that uh, then I, I do, do feel as though, you know, it's not just the way we speak, but, you know, we have a slightly different way of telling stories and, um, and a different kind of, almost a different sort of tonal sensibility. And I think that, that that can sometimes be lost in translation if if it's you know if it's overnoted. You, you do have to be very aware of how a, a, a show, you know what the show originally is, and try, trying to maintain the, the fundamental DNA of the show. How about the production boom that we're seeing in Australia at the moment? From the perspective of writers, is that having any impact on you? I know. In terms of production, there's a lot of competition for crew and things like that. But from a writer's perspective, is it impacting you in any way? Christian is very much in demand. So <laughs> I tried to get him for a writer's room that I was doing the other day. And I, you know, he had to say, turn me down. So he's, yeah, it was a, it was he's the, very in demand. It was the first time I had ever said no to anything. And I, um, and I felt I was torn up. I lost sleep over it. I felt sick <laughs> saying no because for so many years I was trying to break into the industry and, and would, you know, say yes to any tiny scrap of anything. So, so yeah, it's been, um, I don't know, it's been, it's been pretty, it's a, it's a good time, you know, despite the pandemic and everything, it is a good time. Um, there's, there's plenty of stuff going on here, which is, uh, which is a relief. It feels like there's a bit of a, uh, a, a light in all the gloom of the world at the minute. Mm. I think it is probably a good time for writers. Like writers are used to being isolated anyway. Like that's mm. that's our natural condition. Yeah, people ask me, you know, how you how are you enduring during lockdown? And I said, honestly, I don't notice a huge difference. It's just social <laughs> things that I that I get out of, and and that's really it. You know, so yeah, it's not bad. I do I do miss the writers' room. I miss being in that space. I bit miss being able to sort of you know have a cup of tea and then sort of a bit of a gossip mm. and then suddenly two two random thoughts kind of come together and you know zoom's not the same but you know we're we're all pretty adaptable um you know it, it, when you're in real life you go out for lunch and you you just you talk about other things but then the, the conversation leads back to the story and you, you get other places that but yeah I, i'm i'm terrible I, in i've only done one room in over zoom and um I'm just forever saying what? What did you say? I'm just shouting and not missing every second word, and it's um, it's tough, but we're scrambling through it. <laughs> just finally, so Christian, you've just come off, I think, co-writing uh, Relic, the feature film. How did you find mm. the experience comparatively between features and a series? Uh, it, 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 well, with features, you just have so much more time, which is you know, you, you go through multiple drafts, and you seem to have. You get these deadlines which seem distant. They're in the distant future, you know. So that that's the that's the big part of it. Um, whereas with TV, it's just it's just move, move, move. And, but you know, there's pros and cons. You know, with Relic, it was just uh, Nat James and I and a script editor in a in a 
you know, room. And then, then we just, similar to the way Tony and I work, where we'll each do a part, we'll just, you know, throw passes back and forth and, um, you know, the, the best idea wins sort of thing. So it was, um, it, it, the major difference though is time. Yeah. It's just, um, I don't know, there's something about uh, how fast TV moves. That's, I don't know, it's a struggle. Looking back on clickbait, there was definitely stressful times where we were turning things around really quick, but you get over the, maybe you either get past the trauma or you, you bury it. Um, and then you look back and it, God, that was a, that was a fun, it was, you know, an exhilarating time. So I think that um, TV as a writer anyways, is feels a lot more collaborative and there's all these voices in the room. Um, you know, I, I, I'm relatively new to this world and, and I'm still amazed how, you know, being in a room with a handful of pros, uh, often I'll just sit back and watch them get to places story-wise that, it would have taken me a week to get to on my own, you know, and it just, and it happens within minutes and it's just really, um, that's what I love about TV. It's just so collaborative and so kind of quick and fluid. And that's, um, yeah, they're, they're both, they're both great, but very quite different. Dexter Newblood sees America's favorite serial killer return to US cable net showtime for an event series eight years after the close of the original eight season series. It also reunites star Michael Seahall with the show's first showrunner, Clyde Phillips. Ahead of his masterclass at Series Mania this week, where he's a guest of honour, Phillips spoke with Michael Picard about his return to the show, his partnership with Hall in front of and behind the camera, and his role as a showrunner. Here's the first part of their conversation. So hi, Clyde. Thank you so much for your time. How are things? How's it to be back in uh, the world of Dexter again? It's amazing. Um, you know, Dexter kind of changed my life and is changing my life again. And I'm so happy to be back with my old team, to be back with Michael Hall. Um, and we've just gotten done shooting 119 days in a row during COVID, um, chasing the weather. You know, we would shoot a scene in February and then the next scene in late July. Um, and the actors had a had a you know, the directors and all of us had to <clears throat> keep in mind where we're coming out of what we're going into because it was all about trying to find the snow and when we couldn't find it we had to make our own snow. Wow! So so just a few extra challenges for you uh, <laughs> above yeah. you know the usual production challenges I imagine. Then <laughs> <laughs> it it was the toughest shoot that any of us has done. Yeah. Um, again, we shot in I think fifty locations, hundred nineteen days, uh, COVID restrictions. Um, we were like. Um, a professional soccer team or something, meaning we we were tested every day. We were our own bubble. So we were able to stay safe. Yeah. Well, that's, that's remarkable. Congratulations then on uh, completing the show. I mean, uh, can you can you maybe just introduce us to Dexter for maybe people who, who don't know the show <laughs> as well as you might and, and maybe how we meet him now in this in this sort of special event series that we're going to be seeing later this year? Sure. Dexter is Dexter Morgan, and he has been famously called America's favorite serial killer. Um, He was born in blood. He watched it when he was a young baby. He watched his mother get murdered and uh, was it's what's called inherited trauma. And um, through the course, he was rescued by a police officer who adopted him and realized that because of this inherited trauma, that Dexter could never be normal. And um, 
taught him to use the inevitable dark passenger that haunted him, his demon, for good. Meaning, he's Dexter, he kills people, he's a serial killer. Um, we don't condone that by any means, um, but it makes a good drama. And he, in, in this latest incarnation, and, and so then that, it ran for eight seasons. And at the end of the eighth season, he was lost in a hurricane. And at the very, at the very end, we see that he survived the hurricane and led his um, girlfriend and son escape to Argentina. And he ended up in, controversially, I must say, um, I didn't do the last season, um, in a logging camp in Oregon. When we meet him, he is living a very calm and abstinent monastic life in upstate New York in a fictional town called Iron Lake. And he works at um, the fish and game store, surrounded by weapons of minor destruction and surrounded by the trophies of what other people have killed, uh, deer heads and trout on the stuffed trout on the wall. And his when we also meet him, we learn that he's got a, um, a new girlfriend who is the chief of police of the small town of Iron Lake, which um, and he can use that accessibility to that police station to his advantage. Because even though he's had a monastic, abstinent life, this is Dexter, and Dexter's going to kill people. Absolutely. And I mean, it's interesting because your, your relationship with Dexter, because obviously you, you show run the first four seasons and then you left. And and as you say, the, the ending at the end of season eight, um, you know, six or seven years ago now, eight years ago, um, is very controversial in terms of the history of TV endings. It's, it's up there with the best. And um, I noticed Gary Levine, the, the uh, president of entertainment at Showtime, said this week that he was talking about this new series and said that they felt they, they didn't do it justice. So, I mean, how do you feel about the ending maybe and, and coming back to pick up events from, you know, 10 years after that point that is so controversial? Well, I think that the the ending was unsuccessful in almost every regard. And uh, but again, I wasn't in the room, so it's it's, it's almost impossible to do a television show and um, and be consistent in its excellence. And um, the I believe that the people who are making the show and the network sort of broke the code and the trust of the audience. And people were just flabbergasted and exasperated by um, by how it ended. Um, I don't blame anybody. A lot of there's a lot of voices that come into play. Into there are a lot of voices that come into play on something like this. Um, however, Dexter's also, I think, Showtime's most popular show ever. Gary Levine yesterday called it the jewel in the crown of Showtime, and I, th- I think bringing it back was inevitable. And it really had to do with when Michael C. Hall himself was ready to don that skin and, no pun intended, take a stab at playing um, playing this role again. And then when he became ready. Showtime came to me and I sat for a couple of weeks and thought of what the season could be. And then I'm on Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off the coast of Massachusetts. And um, I flew to New York and sat with Michael, uh, pitched him the show. He stood up, gave me a hug and said, I'm in. I I called Gary from the car on the way back to the airport. It was just one day. Um, and I said, Michael's in, and Gary said, go hire a writing staff. And then we were off to the races. Fantastic. And so, I mean, what was so unsuccessful, do you think, about the ending? And, and how have you sought then with this new series in the story to kind of bring Dexter back to the show that, you know, was Showtime's most popular, you know, hit at the time? What was unsuccessful was that they broke the bond with the audience. And um, it was it was almost 
sort of neither here nor there. Uh, in the in the season that we just finished shooting and that we're editing now, um, we've reestablished that bond with uh, with the audience. Uh, we've reestablished the honesty in storytelling, and we've reestablished the greater challenges. I mean, he came from you know one of the largest cities in the world, Miami, Florida, to Iron Lake, fictional Iron Lake, which population two thousand seven hundred sixty. So there's a lot less temptation there. But again, as I, as I said earlier, this is Dexter, and people are going to tune in to watch him uh, be his best self, and uh, we deliver on that. Can you tell us a bit then about your relationship with Michael? Because obviously he's he's been in the show ever present, and and yeah, I guess he knows the character so well. I mean, can you talk a bit about working with him on set and perhaps his involvement with you in shaping the story and, and you know working behind the scenes? Sure. Michael was involved every step of the way. Uh, I ran the theme of the of the of the this year, and the theme is uh, basically fathers and sons or the sins of the father um, <clears throat> by him in that meeting at his apartment. And then he saw, and then we we expanded once I hired a writing staff. We expanded upon that and made it what we call a bible, full season pitch. Ran it by Michael, ran it by the studio, and got took their notes. And then we would outline each episode, and Michael was involved in reading that and giving notes on that and then we'd write each script and Michael was involved in reading that and giving notes and uh, often because he, he so knows the character and he's such a, an actor he's a master class watching him work he would offer, often say to me, you know what, Clyde, about this little section right here, how about if I don't say it? How about if I just do it with my face? Um, and he's always right when he, when he has that instinct. And he was, he was a leader on the set. Um, he, you know, we had a rather large cast, and we had to move them around, and things changed when weather changed and everything. And Michael was always steady as a rock and helped the younger actors. Um, he's just a, a joy to work with. He's involved in editing and musicking with, with me right now. I I mean, we all do it virtually. So, but uh, it, I talk to him probably every other day and email with him several times each day. Yeah. Oh, wow. And and just in your role as a showrunner, I mean, the, the role of the showrunner is so many things to so many people. How would you define your role on, on Dexter and, and how you like to perhaps run the room or, or take a show from, you know, that pitch point right through to production and, and post-production as well? <clears throat> Okay, well, that's uh, two different questions, and I'll I'll answer them both. Um, (laughs) I basically define the role of a showrunner as the person who's in charge, the person who holds 250 soft-boiled egos in his hands every day. And and, because everything's going on, it's got 250 people working on the show. And this one's getting divorced, and this one's getting married, this one's having a baby, and this one's father died, and um, this one had got off at a movie, or whatever it is. And we have to deal with that all the time, every day. Um, you wake up and you say, what fresh new hell will greet me today? Um, and so far as running the room, I believe a lot in delegating. And I, I kind of sit back and listen to the, what the room has to say. I, I will start out with my, I will show up a little scraps of paper from the night before, um, and get them on the on the board, and then um, let my uh, staff run with it, and then make decisions off of that, or say great idea, and never say but. You know, it's like saying I love you, but uh, great idea, and um, let's take it one step further. Or I've got this image. Let's see if we can keep this image, make it organic to the story, and uh, move forward. And most often we can, and sometimes we spend two days um, spinning in circles. Because I had this little piece of paper from when I before and then we realize it's not going to it's a stupid idea and we we move on from it um but my writing staff um 
which are rather, rather large, um, generally end up loving me. I mean, uh, this, this writing staff gave me a guitar as a gift and um, and took out a, an ad in the, the local Martha Vineyard paper uh, extolling um, uh, the pleasure of working with me. And local people on the island saw this and thought I was dead. They thought it was an obituary. So uh, <laughs> I'm not dead. I'm not dead yet. No, no, no. <laughs> and, and I mean, just if we look just at the wider landscape of, of TV with, you know, so many streaming platforms now doing original content. I mean, from your you know viewpoint as a writer and showrunner, I mean, how do you see the opportunities or, or the challenges in the industry at the moment? Well, first of all, uh, we acknowledge them. I watch a, I watch a lot of TV, uh, a sick amount of TV and a lot of European TV. And the audience has changed. Television has changed. Um, my obligation to the audience has changed. Yet, we still want to have, we want this to be, this is not Dexter season nine. We are acknowledging that 10 years from now, and Michael, Michael Hall, Dexter is more mature. Uh, the storytelling of necessity has had to change with some touchstones, both in story and in character and in guest characters and in music, um, are there as breadcrumbs for the audience to feel uh, comfortable as we make them more and more uncomfortable in watching um, in watching the new show. Mm, absolutely. And, and I mean, obviously, people are used to seeing him in Miami. What, what, what will we look forward to seeing him doing in, in Massachusetts in the snow? Is it is it going to be a very different show or, or like you say, those touchstones are still going to be there for us to enjoy, you know, from the original series? Um, it's, a, it's a bit of both. The, the opening <laughs> image is Dexter with a rifle running through the snow, um, chasing something. And we, don't, and we don't know what it is. And so it could not be farther from Miami. It's pine trees and actual snow before we had it because that was the beginning of February. Later on, when the you know, Mr. Climate change came and uh, melt, melted all our snow prematurely we had to create snow but th- there's nothing about the show that looks like it looked before in fact the aspect ratio of it which is this um is a feature it's like a feature it's like we shot a 10-hour feature wow wow, wow. and i know uh, i think gary levine has said you know this is an event series so there's no immediate plans but i mean what are you up to next and and um you know what can we look forward to you know what you're doing next in the future well i'm talking with honestly with showtime about another deal to do another show for them okay great. and uh, and I've, i'm on dexter new blood the show that we're doing now until middle of december we start we premiere november 7th but we're still editing and um mixing and musicking and pring and and all of that uh well into december in Probably beyond that. Inspired by Stephen King's short story Jerusalem's Lot, Epic's horror series Chapelway opens in 1850s Maine as a sea captain and his children return to their hometown where they must confront their dark family history. Showrunning brothers Jason and Peter Filardi spoke to Michael Pickard about expanding King's source material to fill 10 hour long episodes filming a period drama during a pandemic, and why the Sony-backed show, screening at Series Mania this week, serves up scares for an international audience. Here's the first part of their conversation. The show is set in 1850s uh, Maine, and uh, Captain Charles Boone is is a captain of a whaling ship, and when his wife dies, he promised her on her deathbed that he would take the children off the sea and and bring them to uh, an ancestral home that he's inherited uh, from sort of a distant, unknown cousin, uh, and give them a proper life. Um, So he uh, packs them up and, and turns his back on whaling, arrives in 
1850s Maine, and uh, terrible things happened from there. And of course, the uh, the show is based on Stephen King's short story, Jerusalem's Lot. Yeah, and so and so for the pair of you, I mean, are you big Stephen King fans? Uh, are you horror fans? I mean, what was your kind of initial entrance into developing the project? Yeah, personally, we're both huge horror fans, um, uh, and Stephen King fans for sure. I think I read The Shining for the first time when I was like 12 years old, and it just blew my mind and scared the hell out of me. Um, and that set me on the path. Um, yeah, uh, we, the, the whole project started, we were, we were pitching a whole different idea over at Epics and uh, a horror idea over at Epics. And Michael Wright, the president of Epics, as we were leaving, he calls, us, uh, he calls us as we're leaving and said, hey, I just got this Stephen King short story brought to me. Would you guys be interested in that? And of course, we were over the moon to do it, right? We didn't even know what the short story was, but we were just like, yes, of course. Uh, um, so yeah, uh, for me, it was just such a, and my career has mostly been in comedy, It's been, um, but I've always wanted to get into horror because it is my favorite genre. I suppose if you've seen some of my comedy movies, you might think they're horror. I don't know. But um, <laughs> for me, this was fantastic. It was like, it was like a dream come true for me. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the way it goes, isn't it? A lot of the time you walk into a, a meeting with one idea and you come out with another one. So uh, no, that, that's that's great. And uh, and you can't, you obviously mentioned it's a, it's a short story. Um, I mean, I, I imagine it didn't take you long to kind of get to grips with the story. But I mean, what are the challenges then that you had maybe adapt? Because it's obviously a 10 part series. So was it initially that, you know, the thought of, wow, how do we turn this into a, a 10 part, 10 hour series? Or, or what was that kind of initial approach to the source material that you wanted to take with you into the series um we wanted to be true to the intent and and the themes of this of the uh source material and the short story um uh while realizing that we had to build out and and expand upon it significantly to to make 10 compelling hours of television there's there's so much that has to happen um and so we really mined and remind and triple mined the story you know pulling imagery and atmosphere and characters even just if it's a character's name or a peculiarity and then building out upon that person and, and trying really to, uh, you know, remain true to the, the material as best we could. Uh, but the uh, the short story, I'm sure you've probably read it, Michael, is, uh, is really just a series of letters, of back and forth letters between a, a couple people, really. Um, so, so, yeah, I had to create a whole world, really, around it and, and add a lot of characters and, and, and subplots plots uh but there's so many great breadcrumbs within the story like my brother said uh you know they mentioned a baby with no eyes but just in passing but you read that and you go oh man that's bizarre and and then we we expand on that um because like you said the breadcrumbs are in there it was just finding them pulling out the ones you really liked and and um yeah yeah i mean that, that you know like you say it's, it's a series of letters and so it's not it's not a traditional kind of adaptation by any means you know so I mean, does that, how does that sit with you in terms of how far to push it? Or, or I imagine you could have taken it in several different directions. So what was it, maybe the, the central themes you wanted to focus on or, or the characters maybe that you wanted to, to the audience to follow through the story? Well, the, the short story reads a bit like Stephen King's nod to Lovecraft and maybe Bram Stoker. So we wanted to be true to that. We wanted to include um, a Lovecraftian element to whatever we came up with. And also knowing that Jerusalem's, Jerusalem's Lot is kind of an unofficial prequel to Salem 
problems a lot. So there's a certain expectation there. Uh, and we wanted to fit our story within the Stephen King cosmos, which so many people are familiar with and love so much, especially as pertains to Salem's Lot. And then it was Jason and I are from a small New England town called Mystic, Connecticut, uh, which has a rich history of whaling. And we've always been history buffs and, and raised with stories of whaling. And, and we have a whaling museum in town. And uh, once we sort of came up with making Charles Boone a whaling captain, we were able to really connect, I think, with the world and the material and, and marry our own interests and passions and sensibilities with Mr. King's. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, Peter, you've, you've uh, you know, mentioned you, you've got history, I guess, with Stephen King because you, you worked on Salem's Lot. Is that right? So you have kind of a bit more familiarity maybe with this, this particular part of his canon. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I, I think I am one of the world's best students of Salem's Lot. I, I've, I consider the novel, uh, you know, a masterpiece of horror, honestly. Uh, I, I love it. Um, and uh, I have read it, I don't know, God knows, 20 times. I mean, because while adapting, again, as, as with this project, I just I just love, and my brother does too, I mean, really picking through the material carefully and looking for those hidden gems uh, to build out on. Oh, absolutely. And so, I mean, was, I know Stephen, I don't know him personally, but I say that sounding like I do know him, but I don't know him personally, but I mean, was he very involved in this or, or I know he kind of dips in and outs of, of various projects. He wrote um, Lizzie's story recently for Apple TV. Was he very involved with you or do you speak to him about maybe how he might like to see it on TV? You know, unfortunately, we never even got to speak to him, uh, but he is involved. Um, he is involved from far. He, oh, he has to okay pretty much every step of the process, mm-hmm. starting with the writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure I only got okay because my brother is on and believe me. <laughs> I doubt he watched uh, bringing down the house and decided to hire me. Um, but uh, but yeah, he, then he, he has to he has to uh, to um, okay every step of the process. So if we do an outline, he reads he checks it out. He then he reads the pilot. And if he reads the pilot and likes it, we keep going forward. So uh, he's really involved uh, that way. Um, we were hoping, of course, sometimes he'll, he'll do a cameo in shows, but with COVID, you know, yeah, this yeah. was a whole different beast um, when it came to filming and yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Was that was that worrying for you, knowing that um, you were taking maybe such a, a leap with his source material, you know, waiting for his notes to come back and, and you know, worrying maybe that you were going off in completely a, an area that he didn't want the story to go? <laughs> I think uh, I would say a little bit, uh, but not really. I think that he recognized we were really trying to hold true to his vision and, and, and that expansion was necessary. And, you know, I don't know if he's like me, but I personally, you know, I listen to a song on a record album and I, I hear the, a great lead. But then when I go to see the band in person, I'd rather not have the person just play the lead note for note again. I'd rather have them improvise and, and, and riff up a little bit. And, and I suspect he's kind of the same way. It is sort of a form of flattery when somebody takes your your work and really sinks in and, and, and tries to sort of color it a little bit while while remaining honest to your yeah I think uh, I think what sometimes what a lot of people forget is but my brother and I are huge fans too so it, it, right the last thing you want to do is disappoint this guy right disappoint Stephen King so um we really come at it trying to to like I said keep keep the sensibilities of his work but also just uh, make it a little more rich if we can, because 10 hours is crazy. I mean, 10 hours is a lot of, of television time. And 
you have to hold people's attention and in this day and age with so many choices, that's a really difficult thing to do. Um, but that being said, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're big fans. You know, I know people um, talk about, well, they didn't, uh, they went off on a tangent. They didn't hold true to the story. It's like, we really tried because we don't, the last thing we want to do is disappoint the fans and, and ourselves. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned, the, yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, the highest compliment, um, I guess Stephen King posted on Twitter yesterday or the day before, Chapel Way, uh, on epics excellent creepy expansion of my story jerusalem's lot i wrote it in college eight years or so later i realized it was the prologue to the novel which became salem's op so he liked it mission <laughs> accomplished we're happy we're ecstatic <laughs> we were ecstatic <laughs> Well, it's great to have that feedback. And, uh, and you mentioned, yeah, you know, 10 hours is, is a huge amount of time. I mean, here in the UK, you know, we're used to, you know, much shorter series, maybe six, eight episodes at, at the most usually. Um, and certainly series don't go on for as, as long as, you know, most network shows in the US. So um, it's, you know, 10 hours is a long time for me to commit to anything. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of writing a show like that, I mean, how do you, how, you know, and especially as you said, in this modern age, how do you keep the, you know, the viewers coming back for episodes? after episode is there a style or a structure in your writing and and particularly as it's a horror series what are those tricks that you had to kind of put into the show um i think one of our strongest tricks or or horror engines or motors is that the antagonist in this series keeps changing it it evolves or devolves as the case may be um it seems at first to be man against himself then man against uh man uh man against unman and then it takes a final leap into Lovecraftian cosmic horror, man against the universe or, or a dark aberration of the universe. So the bad guy keeps changing. And I think that that really helped us sustain thrills and chills for, for the 10. And 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 you're right, 10's a big order. You know, we thought originally that it might be six or eight. And then the network told us, no, it's going to be 10. And, and so we just had to get a little more inventive. Well, so I think... Uh... <clears throat> You know, we, we tried very much. We, we, we view this as uh, my brother likes to use the word drama So like a drama horror. Right. So we, we gave Charles Boone a family and, and we think that if you can and, and added uh, Rebecca Morgan, uh, Emily Hampshire's character. And if you can, we believe if you can connect and really get to, to love these characters and go through this experience with them, well, it makes it a little scarier, we believe. And, um, and also, if you love these characters, hopefully you'll stick around to see what happens to them. I mean, I know you've obviously written projects together. Have you worked a lot together in the past? And, and how was that for you, kind of coming together and, and fleshing out this project, you know, in terms of, you know, sitting in a room together with perhaps other writers or just yourselves? Or what was that process like for you, getting the scripts together? Well, Michael, this is the first time I've spoken to my brother since we wrapped. So how's that, <laughs> what's that tell you? <laughs> Doesn't sound like it went well. <laughs> uh, uh, no, you know, we, we both had solo careers, really our whole our whole careers, um, <clears throat> totally different paths. But um, as I told you, um, horror is my favorite genre in the past. I don't know, five or six years, we just decided to start fooling around and doing stuff together because we, we do enjoy working together and uh, and we work pretty effortlessly together. So um, we wrote a few things that got sold, option never made. This is um, the first thing that 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 got made. Uh, but no, it, it was it was honestly I wouldn't I wouldn't have wanted to take on this burden, this huge 
this huge beast without my brother. Um, it was, we actually had a really great time doing it together. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, there's a shorthand, of course, with, with uh, siblings and, and um, uh, it, it is, it's such a, a mountain of work to, to oversee a show like this uh, that I, I wouldn't have wanted, I would have never wanted to do it by myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, Peter, I can see in, in, in the background, it looks like you've got a whiteboard full of notes and things. Is that kind of how you work? together is it yeah three three whiteboards full of work so uh kind of is that your process you get you know you break down the scenes on the whiteboards and and you know what's that process like for you especially on on this show that's that's exactly how it begins um the white with whiteboards on zoom uh uh, and just sort of talking out each episode the broad strokes of each episode and trying to figure out the arcs the overalling overall arcs of each of the characters and then once you get you know once you get the it's almost like a house you build inward you know you start with the frame and you just then then you're able to sort of break down each episode and get increasingly detailed but uh there's no sense in getting caught up in the details early on you know it's that's a trap you have to you have to you know look at the big big picture yeah that's good advice absolutely and and so you mentioned because of COVID, no Stephen King cameo. But I mean, what was it like being showrunners during the pandemic and actually getting, you know, the show made? What were those challenges that you faced above and beyond, I guess, what you might usually expect? Yeah, it was um, it was different. But, you know, we were extremely fortunate before COVID even happened. We were obviously supposed to be up in we shot this in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm in and around Halifax. And, um, and uh, we just so happened to be so fortunate to pick a, pick a location where they had pretty much beat COVID. So when we got up there in July of 2020, we were supposed to go in March, but we got there in July, 2020, they had no community spread whatsoever. So they were living pretty normally because they had shut down everything. Nobody was allowed in unless you're an essential worker. And I mean, bars, restaurants, groceries, there was these places that were all open. Yes, they were wearing masks and all that, but, but they really had a, a handle on it. So we were one of the first productions to actually get going during the, during this time. Um, now, of course we had to do, you were always on edge because one case and you're shut down and you're in big trouble and that's a lot of money. But so we, we were masked, we had different colored masks that said, you know, who could interact with who on set. And, um, we tested twice a week. I think the actress had to test three times a week. So, um, it's always there. It's always, you know, on your mind. And, uh, but we got through the whole, whole production without one single case. It was, uh, it was a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously it's a period drama as well. So what were the, what were the, I guess the regular challenges you had, were there particular scenes or, or parts of the story that you kind of, uh, had to really think about how you might actually get this from page to screen? There's so many challenges with, um, horses, the amount of horses, uh, for instance, you know, uh, if you do one take with somebody on horseback, a reset takes forever because they have to ride the horse and do a circle and come back to the spot and pass through again. So anything on horseback is, you know, it's treacherous. And if the character can be walking their horse, it's a big help. We learned. Uh, we had, uh, we had a lot of, uh, <laughs> there was a lot of mud. There was a lot of mud, um, daily. We built, uh, you know, we had to build the town. I mean, our, our, um, 
Uh, oh gosh, we did so much building that at one point we had literally hired every single carpenter in in uh, in Nova Scotia. They were saying it was, um, but so we built like the town of Preacher's Corners. They didn't have all this stuff up there. Um, we built uh, the town of Jerusalem's Lot. I mean, these guys were our production designer, Matt Lively, was just incredible. Um, so we had to recreate that whole look and feel and vibe um, of 1850s. And that's always a, um, it's always a difficult thing to do. A period piece is always difficult. So, right. Like you just said, I'm from costumes to, to the look of everything. Um, we, we chose, you know, everything we wanted lamp light because that was, you know, no, we want natural lighting and lamp lighting um, to give that mood that we've got Gothic horror mood um, uh, that we were trying to get. And um, yeah, but mud, boy, it rained and it snowed on us. We were there for pretty much three seasons, you know, summer, uh, fall and, and winter. So uh, we got, we got, uh, we got a lot of rain and that, and by the way, that makes it look authentic to the time period. It's great. Um, but uh, a lot of snow. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was uh, we survived. Yeah. We survived. <laughs> you can look back and laugh about it now. You do. Uh, That's what you do. That's what you do. There are many, you know, if you're shooting a horror series, you can expect to be shooting a lot at night. So, uh, you, you know, you're typically maybe doing, if you're lucky, you're doing what we call splits, you know, noon to midnight. But more often than not, you're doing uh, dusk till dawn. And uh, so, it gets cold at four in the morning, five in the morning in your little tent uh, or uh, during the winter. I see pictures of myself back, you know, towards, especially towards the end, you're hitting like November, December, and I look like a vampire. They got to just put me in. I mean, you look <laughs> like death warmed over. <laughs> And I mean, what was it? Oh, yeah, just I mean, just a word maybe on, on working with Adrian Brody, who needs no introduction, and, and Emily Hampshire, who is obviously on a hot streak after you know Shit's Creek has been such a huge hit. What was it like getting those two together on set? And and do you have a way you like to work with your lead actors as well? Uh, well, they were both fantastic. Um, uh, Adrian was just, I, I mean, it just all starts with casting. You know, being fortunate enough to you know get the scripts in the right hand, and and when Adrian and Emily responded responded to the pilot script and, and signed on, you've already taken a, a huge step in the right direction. Um, and then uh, as far as how we dealt with them on set, I mean, they're very intelligent, creative people. They know how to read a script. They know how to read subtext. It's mostly just about conversation. And, you know, if, if they have questions about the intent or, uh, of any particular moment, they'll ask you and you better have an answer. And uh, and and you sort of find, you find the truth together. It's mm -hmm. kind of the yeah, great and and obviously the shows for epics who you know i guess are one of the the newcomers perhaps in in the television business creating their own series i mean what as as writers what do you just make of of the opportunities there are at the moment in the business to have your stories made and and maybe what challenges do you face as well is it is it, it's obviously a great time and a golden time for tv as as a lot of people often say but uh what do you just make of it on the ground getting shows into production it is a golden time you know both of us mainly primarily our our careers were in features uh, my brother did more TV uh, than, than I have. But um, yeah, most definitely there's a lot of opportunities out there for television. I mean, we've moved over, um, whereas in film, uh, getting feature features done, it's, it's a lot tougher now. It's that that area shrunk. Uh, so TV's kind of like the Wild West. It's um, it's lots of places to go, lots of places. But still, it's still very difficult to get something made. I mean, that I still, you know, the stars have to align to get something made. 
you can do your part as a writer. You can sell the idea. You can say, be fortunate enough to write a pilot where they say, oh, man, we're going to make this. And then things get out of your control, such as casting. If they can't cast the right people, all that. Um, the director, budgets, things like this. So um, there's always so many mountains to climb in order to get something made. Um, we were just extremely fortunate at Epics that they gave us um, not only the opportunity to make something, but they gave two guys who have never done been showrunners before to be, they trusted us enough to be showrunners. And of course they partners, partnered us up with an amazing guy named Donald DeLine um, to be a, also executive producer on. So we were in good hands and, and, um, and man, we are extremely grateful for that opportunity because we learned a ton um, um, trial by fire, you know. But, and television is just so, this is my first piece uh, over four, hours long and um it's so exciting you know when you do a feature and and you work for two or three years on it and it gets made and the audience watches it for an hour and a half and they walk out of the experience moved or unmoved and and uh they get an ice cream and they go on with their lives but a 10 hour to be able to tell a 10 hour or a six hour or an eight hour story and to really engage audience members for this long this show in the united states is going to be rolling out all the way to Halloween night, which is the finale night. And to have to be, you know, the topic of conversation around the water cooler for that long is really heady stuff. It's just great. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think these longer stories are, are wonderful opportunities for, for all creative people, you know, um, every key, the art department, the directors, the writers. I, I do think television is just marvelous. Fantastic. And then just, you know, for audiences who are going to watch the show at Series Mania or for, I hope for other international audiences as well. I mean, what can you just say about the show to whet our appetite? Why? should uh you know we all tune in for you know for jerusalem's lot no i said would tune in to see a really great compelling uh gothic horror story something we haven't seen a lot of lately uh you get some amazing performances adrian brody is incredible in this he's um he's just so solid and so haunted and uh um and emily hampshire's incredible um you know such a great supporting cast and it's um and it's spooky and it's and it's full of dread and it's uh it's, it's exactly what you want to be watching as we head into you know the fall uh and uh and and, and uh halloween season well no it's great that they're going to roll it out over you know all the way up to halloween that's great that you know like you say it means that we have a you know here we've had a few big shows that have been you know that linear weekly you know release and it, when it hits you know it really goes down well so um great um it should be fun it should be such a fun halloween you know yeah. I, I, <laughs> It'll be exciting because it's also a very strong episode. Yeah, I was going to say that that obviously leads up to something uh, particularly yeah. spooky. Then, uh... <laughs> and then the end, we, we we definitely have a great end for those who who you know buy into the ride and and hang with us. Uh, they, they're going to have a they're going they won't be disappointed with the end. Yeah, and and do, is there room for a kind of chapel wait season two or or is it kind of a one and done? And you're looking on to see what you're going to do next. Um, well, we thought it would be one and done originally but uh just sort of by the nature of the end that came to us um uh there is room to go further um we're, uh, i don't the end is the, the the season one is contained you could be happy uh you could walk away and and feel fulfilled uh but the door is definitely open for season two or three that's all for this episode, but the podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media.
My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.